Okay, we're going to go ahead and get started. Good morning, everyone, and welcome back. I'm so happy to see your beautiful faces again. Okay, so let's jump right into it. So I hope everyone had an okay night last night um, and had an opportunity to practice some of what we talked about yesterday. And if not, now you've got many more weeks ahead of you to try it out. So just a quick review of what we went over yesterday. So we talked a little bit about an overview of DBT and the research on this treatment. We talked about principles and assumptions of DBT, and then we focused on a few strategies. So uh, therapeutic style, which we saw illustrated in that video by Dr. Alan Frazetti, behavior chain analysis, and then lastly, the diary card. So today we are gonna be very skills focused. That's all we're gonna cover today, essentially. And we have four different modules that we're gonna be covering, uh, mindfulness, distress tolerance, emotion regulation, and interpersonal effectiveness. And if we have some extra time at the end, we're gonna do another behavior chain analysis practice. Okay. So just a reminder before we begin, you saw this graphic yesterday, which was really, um, about how emotion dysregulation happens for people who are struggling with that issue. And so in order to escape this intense reaction, people engage in these ineffective strategies to try to get relief, right? So self-harm, substance use, getting into a fight, whatever. And so our job in DBT is to replace those behaviors with more effective ones, as well as to shape the client's environment so that they're also being more reinforced or being more skillful for the rest of the day. Um, so that's the focus for the rest of the day that we're going to be talking about. So basically becoming more effective uh, and more skillful people in the world. So just briefly, I mentioned the four modules just now, but one thing I wanna have you all keep in mind is that we teach each of these probably individual DBT skills I'm gonna talk about today in the course of an hour and a half group. So um, I'm gonna be giving you the quick and dirty version of what I think are sort of the most useful or stand out more specific to DBT skills that may be less familiar for you all who haven't done DBT before. Um, but that being said, we're going to go through it relatively quickly. So if you are interested in getting more extensive DBT training where you're able to spend more time on each piece, we're going to have a slide at the end uh, where I kind of go over what some of your options are for doing something like that. So quick and dirty version today. I'm going to try to cram as many DBT skills into your brain in the short amount of time we have together. So let's just review our case example because we're going to be coming back to Jimena throughout the course of the day today. Okay, um, give me, sorry, just one second here. Okay, so Jimena is 35 year old, pansexual, second generation, Latinx cisgender woman, and she lives again in a multi generational household and is diagnosed with bipolar one disorder with a history of multiple hospitalization for manic episodes and suicide attempts. So I'm hoping that Jimena kind of illustrates maybe an average client that you might be working with in your clinic. So she regularly self-harms in the form of cutting her legs, punching herself, and she works full-time as a library assistant at the local library. She has support from her parents and grandparents, but they're feeling burned out with her due to how often she picks fights with them and then threatens to harm herself. She currently has a partner and the relationship is up and down. She recently yelled profanities at you, her therapist, for encouraging her to be consistent with her meds as she often misdoses, which leads to her feeling off, quote unquote. Okay, so that's Amina. So we're going to be started by reviewing mindfulness. So uh, mindfulness refers to the practice of bringing intentional awareness to one's experience in the present moment, and specifically in a non-judgmental and compassionate way. And 
part of what's also happening is that you are accepting reality as it is rather than fighting against it or attempting to push painful experiences away. So rather than distracting ourselves from what's happening, we're really in the moment. And many of you are probably familiar with mindfulness. I feel like it's a very popular um, thing in, in many circles these days. Uh, and some people may be familiar because of your own spiritual or cultural traditions. But DBT draws specifically from Zen Buddhist practice, um, which is an Eastern practice that's been around for centuries. So this is not new information. Um, and mindfulness really is the foundation of DBT. The idea being that before you know you need to use skills, you have to be aware of the fact that you're feeling overwhelmed emotionally in the first place. So mindfulness, I think of as giving us that bird's eye perspective. So kind of looking from above down below at kind of what's going on in the moment to be able to check in and see what's going on. So we see things in reality and then you can act accordingly. So for example, if I know I'm feeling really sad and that I'm also having urges to isolate, I have to know that that's what's happening, that I'm feeling sad, first of all, and that I'm having urges to isolate before I know I can do anything about it. Because I'm like, oh, I'm just feeling kind of crappy today, but I don't take any time to kind of think about it very much. I may very well isolate myself or um, just kind of keep going on rather than knowing, oh, there's something I could actually do that maybe it won't change things entirely, but maybe it could help a little bit in this moment or maybe even prevent this from happening in the future. So the goals in mindfulness are about reducing suffering and increasing happiness, so reducing pain, tension, and stress, and con increasing control of your mind. So essentially the idea of this is that you're, stop you're not letting your mind be in control of you or your actions. And then lastly, to experience reality as it is, which is again, seeing things as they are rather than as clouded by our emotion mind. So the main skills under mindfulness in DBT are the what and how skills and the three states of mind. And briefly, the what and how skills refer to what you do when you practice mindfulness. So observing, describing, and participating in your experience. And then the how skills are about how you practice when you're practicing mindfulness. So taking a non-judgmental stance, doing things one mindfully, meaning one thing at a time, and then doing them effectively. So we're gonna spend some time right now talking about um, specifically the three states of mind and then also non-judgmental stance. And again, I'm gonna breeze through a little bit of this mindfulness piece because I think a lot of you are familiar with this concept already. Um, I know there's also some other trainings being offered or offered previously this year that you can check into from UCLA as well. Okay, so let's start with non-judgmental stance. So again, mindfulness means paying attention to the present moment non-judgmentally. So we're going to talk about that last piece, non-judgmentally, and what that means. So let's describe what judgments are first. So judgments are shorthand ways of describing preferences and consequences. For example, if I am out hiking and I encounter a rattlesnake, which happens in California, um, I'm not going to take the time to say to myself, this is potentially a dangerous animal because it might bite me and its venom would get into my bloodstream and cause problems for me. I would then have to be airlifted out of the situation and that might cost a lot of money, right? I don't have time for all of that. Instead, what I'm going to say to myself is something like bad and then keep myself safe. Because bad for me in his association with something's wrong or unsafe, I need to do something about it. And so I jump into action um, and do whatever I need to do in that situation. So unfortunately, so, okay, first of all, that's a really helpful thing to be able to do, right? That judgments can give us that shorthand information so we can act on it. 
but judgments aren't as effective in all situations and sometimes prevent problems when we rely on them exclusively. So specifically, judgments often distract us from reality. So judgments may replace facts um, because we judge, we often stop, or when we judge, we often stop observing what's really there and get caught up in that judgment instead. And judgments also tend to feed negative emotions. So anger, guilt, shame, jealousy, envy, etc. Um, so for example, if I describe my body as ugly and gross when I look in the mirror, my emotions are going to jump up quickly, um, maybe to shame or to sadness, rather than if I described it the way I'm actually seeing it, not through that lens of judgments. So I'm going to ask you all to do a bit of an exercise with me. And what I want you to do is I want you to think about one of your most challenging clients that you're working with either presently or in the past. And if you're having a hard time thinking of an example, imagine yourself working with Hamina. So just take a second. And what I'm going to have you do is write in the comment section um, some of the things you say or think about them, and specifically the judgmental things that you say or think about them. And if you don't feel comfortable putting in the comment section, again, this is a sort of a judgment-free zone, um, you can write them down on a piece of paper or just think about them in your mind. Challenging, inconsistent, needs more than I can give them. These are not very judgmental yet. Let's, let's up it. Let's see what's happening here. Rude and with staff, yeah, annoying. Insert uh, expletive word. <laughs> Dreading the session, mm -hmm. exhausting. Dominates conversation. Agitating, great choice of words here, yeah. Dominates, okay, rude, entitled, helpless. High maintenance, mm -hmm. yeah, these are, and I'm appreciating your honesty about this because these are unfortunately the real things that come for us in reaction to clients. Stubborn, great examples. So I want you to take a second now that some of you have had a moment to reflect on this and think about when you are thinking about this person and you're thinking about them specifically from that judgmental standpoint, what emotions do you feel coming up? Do you notice that you feel more emotional about that person in this moment? So for example, feeling more angry or more frustrated with them or more sad or ashamed about them. Guilty, sorrow, yeah. Anger and resentment, anxious, stressed out. Yeah, all of the burnout type words. Sad, not knowing how to help somebody, anxious, not taken seriously, yeah. Yeah, and these are all really normal things to feel, especially when we're in that emotion-minded place around somebody. And again, kind of moving into that judgmental place. So we're going to take a second to shift gears. And we're going to be describing that same client using a non-judgmental stance, which is a bit different. And what you're going to be doing is describing facts, consequences, and or your preferences about them. So you can include some of the phrases I've used in this slide if that's helpful. So things that start with like, I wish, or I don't like, um, or this is effective or ineffective for, or this thing happened in this way at this time. There can even be things like, again, preferences, like I like this about this person, right? So there are ways that you can still describe your own reactions rather than in a non-judgmental format, rather than judging your client. So let's try that for a few seconds and just think about what are the facts about this situation? And go ahead and write some of those in the chat box. Okay, great. So I don't like the way this client spoke to me. Great example. 
Um, this is a learned maladaptive coping mechanism she learned in order to survive. Yeah, really empathic. Determined. Mm -hmm. I wish they would listen. Yeah, yeah. So this client never experienced validation, so I need to validate them. Mm -hmm. Great examples, you all. And one of the things, if you ever become part of a DBT team, is that we have a bell that we ring in sessions and in our consult team when somebody is using judgmental language, either positive or negative judgments, to describe a client, because we want to be behaviorally specific when we describe them. So, for example, if I say, um, uh, this client is so help-rejecting, or right, something like that, that's a judgmental kind of statement, one of my colleagues or I would ring the bell to sort of acknowledge that, and then I restate it in a non-judgmental way. So you all have come up with great examples here. I'm really appreciative of that. So do you notice any difference in the way that your emotions come out when you describe them non-judgmentally versus judgmentally? What we tend to see on average is that there aren't, it's not that emotions are going to go away when you're non-judgmental. Like there still might be some things that are there, right? Especially if you're saying like this person never had validation. Like that's, that's sad sometimes. But it may be that those emotions feel a little bit softer or a little bit less intense. And that's part of what we're going for is sort of not having your emotions drive the way you're looking at a client or your decision making. So thanks for participating in that. So that is non-judgmental stance. It's a practice of mindfulness. Um, again, I talk a lot about a lot of ways to build empathy for clients. Non-judgmental stance is a great way to do that as well. Okay, so let's go on to talk about the states of mind. And what I'm going to do is I'm actually going to bring in uh, Marsha Linehan, Dr. Marsha Linehan, to describe this for us. So give me just one second. I'm going to go ahead and share that video. So in general, when I'm teaching, the first skill I always teach is the skill of wise mind. And the skill is based on the basic belief that all people have within themselves the ability to be wise. And what you're going to be doing is simply teaching clients how to find their own wisdom. Now, besides wise mind, I have two other kinds of mind. Reasonable mind is when a person is only paying attention to reason itself. How you feel doesn't matter, what you want doesn't matter, what you're hoping for doesn't matter. None of that matters because what they're looking for is what the facts are. Now we can go right across and run into emotion mind. What I mean by emotion mind is when you overdo emotions. This is when you're being completely controlled by emotions. So now we're gonna to move to what is wise mind. Wise mind includes the synthesis of both of those. And it's based on the idea that everyone has the capacity for wisdom. Okay, so with wise mind, part of what we are ta talking about is this place between emotional mind and reasonable mind. So the logical mind being reasonable mind, very focused on facts, emotional mind, again, driven by emotions. And there's a place for both of these mindsets in the world, um, but we don't wanna be in them all the time because they can lead to consequences sometimes. So wise mind is this fusion of the two where we are thinking about what's in our long-term best interest, but also at the same time, we're validating our emotions. We're not just steamrolling them and saying, well, this is what's good for me right now. We're also being able to say, this is painful for me at the moment and I know what's gonna be me working toward my life worth living. And a wise mind is specific to each of us. It's based on 
um, our own personal long-term goals. It's based on our own personal experience of emotions, our his personal history, um, our cultural background, et cetera. That's all comes together. So I can't tell a client what's in their wise mind. They have to find that for themselves. And so the reason wise mind is important is because in order to sort of make decisions about your future or about um, what you're going to do in any given situation when you're feeling really emotionally overwhelmed, we ask clients to turn to their wise mind to help them make that choice. So if some people describe wise mind as like a feeling in their gut, um, like a place coming from their heart. Um, other people like have a very different kind of uh, conceptualization of it. We let people decide what feels right to them, but it's sort of finding um, what makes sense in that moment for somebody to do. And again, that comes from a place of mindfulness, being aware of your situation and being aware of your inside and kind of outside experience in that moment. So from this foundation of mindfulness, we're able to move to the skills like distress tolerance. So this is our next module here. And distress tolerance skills are to be used in situations that are highly stressful and short term. So this might be a situation where you or your client are feeling very stressed or emotional and feel the urge to act on your emotions in the way that it's not going to be of service to you. Again, any of those target behaviors, like you want to yell at somebody, you want to cut them off on the road, uh, you want to cut yourself, you want to get drunk, whatever it is. And we use distress tolerance skills really to get through a difficult moment without doing something to make it worse. That's the whole function of distress tolerance. And again, these skills are acceptance-based skills, we, meaning that we're not trying to change the situation. We're trying to change our reaction to it and be able to kind of surf the, the wave of the intense experience. And another way of looking at this is that we are not allowing ourselves to be held a hostage by our emotions so that you can feel them without having to act on your urges in that moment. And as always, these skills are not meant to be used in dangerous situations where you're in any kind of imminent danger. So for example, if your client is being physically or sexually abused, we don't encourage them to use distress tolerance to get through it. We work instead on change-oriented skills to get to safety. So here is a sort of comprehensive list of all of the distress tolerance skills from DBT. Um, there's also a module of substance use specific skills that I really like. Um, we're going to run through a few examples of these. Um, again, and I would say, keep in mind, there are also many other options beyond what we're going to be talking about today, including things that you may have already learned from other therapeutic modalities or other personal experiences like self-soothing, distraction, radical acceptance, strategies to manage substance use, etc. So I'm going to give you kind of like the best of top hits. Okay, so we're going to skip through stop for just a moment. So I mentioned the skill yesterday and how much I love it. Um, and the TIP skill is an acronym. There are tons of acronyms in DBT. Um, it gets a little old at times, but you, as you start to learn the language, you'll remember them. Um, but TIP stands for Temperature, Intense Exercise, Pace Breathing, and Progressive Muscle Relaxation. And why I like this skill so much is because it works fast and it involves a quick physiological change. So something changing to your, your body chemistry, essentially. And again, TIP is meant to be used in situations where you're completely in emotion mind. So if you're, if we're looking at like a zero to 10 scale of intensity, where 10 is like the most out of control you've ever felt, your emotions are so strong, this is maybe for when you're at a seven out of 10 up until a 10 out of 10. So kind of that higher range to kind of bring some of that intensity down. And so in order to explain TIP, I'm going to bring in Denise, who is actually in a DBT program. Um, and she has a public YouTube channel called Marbles Misplaced, where she shares a lot of DBT skills. I really like it. Um, I encourage you to watch it if you want examples from a client's perspective on how to use skills. So I'm going to go ahead and share this video. This is the last video for today. So hopefully it will go 
of skills that has helped me a lot are the tip skills okay so the tip skills stands for T tip the temperature I intense exercise and P um, pace breathing and pair it with muscle relaxation so I'm gonna go through all of those don't worry I just wanted to tell you what the whole acronym means right away okay let's start with the T so the T is for tip the temperature and basically what this means is you're gonna use cold water or a cold sensation in order to change your body chemistry so what they recommend doing is you can get a bowl of cold water not too cold but a bowl of cold water and stick your face in it and hold your breath for 30 seconds or what you can also do is get a cold pack put that on your face and hold your breath for 30 seconds. Now, why are we holding our breath? It's because of, there's something called the dive response, according to DBT anyways. So what this response is stimulated when you hold your breath and you put some a cold um, water on your face. And it makes your body feel, think that you're diving underwater and it slows your heart rate down and helps you just calm down and regulate your emotions. So that's pretty awesome, right? It's like you're hacking your body kind of. Um, I've tried this, you know, I've tried it even with just like splashing my face with water when I feel really upset, cold water. And it actually does help. So you can do the full, you know, 30 seconds holding your breath thing, or you can just get something cold, put it on your face and just focus on that sensation. And that will help bring your heart rate down. That will help you just regulate yourself a little bit better. Okay, the I is for intense exercise. And that's just like it sounds. You want to, you don't have to go to the gym unless that's like easy for you. But you can just, wherever you are, if you're at home or somewhere where you're able to run in place or do jumping jacks or do some push-ups, lift some weights, something that is very intense for a short period of time that's going to help uh, you regulate yourself. It's going to help those emotions feel less powerful over you because you're getting them out through physical exercise. So if you're feeling that very, very intense urge to self-harm or do something really impulsive, you can run in jumping jacks or jump rope or whatever. And after you do that for like a couple minutes, you're going to feel less like that, that you need to act on that emotion right away. Does that make sense? So intense exercise, it doesn't have to be like an hour long workout session, but just try and do like a minute or two of something really intense that will help you regulate yourself and take the pressure off that like emotion urge that you're having. Okay, and the P stands for paired breathing, sorry, the P stands for paced breathing with paired muscle relaxation. So the paced breathing is you want to slow your breathing down. They recommend making your exhale longer than your inhale. So you can inhale for five seconds and then exhale for seven seconds. Anything that your exhale is longer than your inhale and you just want to slow your breathing down because that will automatically slow down your nervous system, slow down that um, intense uh, emotion urge that you're having. So do the slow breathing and then you can do it with the paired muscle relaxation. So the muscle relaxation is basically where you tense up certain parts of your body and then release. So like tense your fists really, really hard and then release and you'll feel a lot more relaxed. This is great if you can do this in bed. So you slow down your breathing and then go through each part of your body. I like to start with my feet and then move my way upward and just work on tensing, 
and releasing. They recommend in the book you can say the word relax on your out breath, you know, try and time your breath with releasing the tension. So you inhale, tense, 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 and then exhale, relax, release the tension. Okay? And if you. Okay. Let me take a moment just to ask if there's any questions um, because last she runs through these skills relatively quickly. Um, and I also think they are really useful skills. So I want to just see, fill in, in the chat section, anything that you have questions about on this area. And I will just give a brief explanation while you are doing that, just kind of a summary. So temperature is a skill again, that is about getting this part of your face, this little um, bone that's underneath your eyes under cold water. So again, you can do that. Uh, by putting your face in water into like a, a tub of water or a sink that's filled or alternatively you can do it with ice pack and you put it on your face right here and the idea is you want to hold your breath for that 30 seconds either with the ice pack or with your faces in water obviously you're holding it and then you take a break and you might take a break for 30 seconds come back and do it again and you're really just doing it as many times as is needed to bring that emotional intensity down for most people it tends to work pretty quickly is my experience um, and same thing with all the rest of these skills. So sometimes a client will say, I'll say like, let's practice tip together to get you down. It might be that they do just temperature and that's enough for them. But if that's not the case, you can work your way through these skills based on what is most effective for you. Okay, uh, let me just check out your questions. What's the name of her channel? That Marbles Misplaced, yes. Um, how to work with clients who have physical disabilities who are not willing to do the intense exercise proportion. Yeah, absolutely. So again, these are based on your specific client and their abilities. So if one of these doesn't work, uh, their physical needs, for example, work on temperature or work on pace breathing, which is really just about like slowing the intensity of your breath and making it more regulated or progressive muscle relaxation. So you get to choose. And TIP is just one set of skills in distress tolerance. There are lots of others, like I mentioned before, like distraction um, for short periods of time to take your mind off of the problems. You can come back to it later when you're feeling less emotional so you can handle it. Um, Self-soothing. So using your five senses to bring down the intensity of your experience. So there's lots of other options available. Um, so some clients report focusing on breathing triggers panic attacks. Yeah. So if that's the case, again, part of what I would say is you choose based on what works for your clients. That's why we offer so many different skills is because if one is more upsetting to them, we definitely don't want to use the one that's more upsetting because we're trying to bring down the emotional experience. So you, you pick and choose what works for them and kind of customize to your client. And then let me answer one last question to confirm when we do the pace breathing and pair it with progressive muscle relaxation, do we inhale and tense muscles and then exhale and relax? It depends. So some people take these as two separate skills where you can do pace breathing alone and progressive muscle relaxation. So I'll walk you through that. So one way to do it separately, or you can do them hand in hand is pace breathing would be to just breathe in for five seconds, hold for a few at the top, and then exhale for seven. Or if that's too, uh, too long of a period, you can do three seconds, hold for a few seconds, exhale for five. And people can do that on their own if they prefer. And then they can either integrate progressive muscle relaxation into that, or they can do it as a separate skill. And PMR is particularly helpful for people who have sleep problems. So that's a good exercise to do in bed, for example. And that's really just going through each set of your muscles. So, you know, tensing your hands, clenching your face, uh, tensing your stomach muscles, your legs, your feet, and kind of moving down your body and releasing after you hold for five seconds in each area of your body. Okay. All right. Great, everyone. Thank you. So let's move on to the next slide here.
So we're going to be talking about pros and cons. So we're going to be thinking about Amena's mean, situation for a moment to go through a pros and cons list. And probably a lot of you are familiar with pros and cons. Maybe you've made decisions using these before. But part of the reason I want to introduce this version is because it's slightly more complicated than your average pros and cons list because it includes not just short term, but also long term. And the issue for a lot of our clients with emotion regulation issues is that they focus on the short-term benefits of whatever behavior they're doing and not so much the long-term benefits um, or downsides of whatever it is that they're doing. So again, kind of getting them in that mindset of, is this going to serve me in the long-term based on my own goals and my life worth living? So let's look at Hamina's situation. So just as a quick reminder from before, Hamina um, just yelled at you because you encouraged her to take her medications regularly because she's been having a lot of days where she feels off when she doesn't take them. So what we're looking at is we would fill this in with Hamina, which is to say, what are, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, we're on the right side. Okay, good. Um, what we're looking at is the doing the same behavior she's been doing. So missing medication dosage. And then we're also comparing it to the new behavior, which is being more consistent with meds. So what we would go through first in this chart to elicit with Hamina and maybe even add in or ask some questions about whether things would be relevant if we can fill those in, would be what are, so starting top left, what are some of the short-term pros? What are the benefits to missing your meds? And she might say something like, sometimes it feels good to punish myself or make others worry about me. So I like sometimes feeling off because I feel like I deserve it. And then we might ask her, what about long-term? What are the benefits of missing your medication in the long-term? Well, we might hear something like, I don't have to try as hard at anything because people see me as sick. So I don't have to achieve anything. I don't have to work hard because people just assume I'm always gonna be sick. So there's something she's getting out of this bit, um, this behavior. And then again, we might turn to the bottom and see what are some of the downsides? So what are some of the cons in the short-term? So she might feel more irritable, that feeling of being off, um, I get more paranoid. I have symptoms of mania when I don't take my medication. And then again, long-term, what are the cons of missing doses of medication? Well, it increases my symptoms, so I can't do as, do as well at work. It damages my relationships because it's harder to ask people when I have suspicious thoughts. Um, maybe even the cost of hospitalizations or increased medical care when I haven't taken my medication for a period of time. I might end up in the hospital, um, which is really expensive for a lot of people, unfortunately. So we have her weigh the situation, and then we look next at the new behavior, taking the medication consistently. And again, we do the same thing here. We try to look at what are the short-term and long-term pros and cons of changing your behavior. So again, pros might be my mom doesn't bug me to take it then if, I, if I'm consistent. I feel better overall. Long-term, I have increased mental health stability. I avoid hospitalizations or making less effective decisions. It, it's an easy way to manage my bipolar disorder symptoms. It's less expensive than hospitalizations, right? I'm just throwing some things out there that could be coming from this client. And then again, we look at cons. So we see there's actually a decent amount of cons. Um, it's hard to remember. I have to set up a system to remind myself in which, which takes extra work medication side effects. And then, you know, long-term, some people are concerned about like weight gain, for example, from meds or other side effects that can happen. So even though we may see that there are a lot of things in certain lists, part of what our job is with Hamena is to figure out, do any of these carry more weight than the others, 
right? For example, if some of the short-term cons are, you know, it's hard to remember, I have to set up a system, like, are those things that we could get help to manage that would make it worth it? So let's go back for one second. So the ultimate question that Jimena is asking herself is, are the short-term pros, so sometimes it feels good to punish myself or make others worried about me, of missing the medication, worth the long-term cons, so this bottom right corner here, is it worth it, right? Are the short-term pluses of missing meds worth the idea that she, her symptoms increase, damages her relationships, the cost of hospitalizations, and maybe even time spent away from the things she'd like to be doing if she's hospitalized? Is it worth it? And again, Jimena has to answer this from her wise mind. I can't answer it for her, even though the answer to me seems very obvious. It's her life that she's living. So then we ask her the second question, which is, would you be willing to get help managing the short-term cons to this new behavior? So um, getting help maybe with an organization system of, of, um, for her medications to help her remember or asking somebody to help with that or dealing with medication side effects, would she be willing to get help to manage that? Um, if it would mean she would get the long-term benefits. So the top right corner here, that she would have the ability to get increased mental health, stability, avoiding hospitalizations or making less effective decisions, easier way to manage, et cetera. And again, that's where the wise mind comes in is to decide, is this worth it? And then part of our job is if the answer is yes, which it might be, maybe not, then we help her work on dealing with those short-term cons, which is we help her maybe get a medication uh, box, like a pill organizer, for example, or setting a daily reminder or asking somebody to remind her uh, in the mornings or the evenings before bed, like a parent or grandparent who she lives with, et cetera. Okay. So we are jamming through distress tolerance here. So I wanna take a quick break for questions um, and also maybe a little stretch break for those of you who've been going for the last 40 minutes or so. What questions do you have so far based on where we've been? Medication side effects can be a big thing. Yeah, totally. Um, if my client is a teenager and the side effect of the med is weight gain, that obviously is a big con for her. What can I do to help her be med compliant? This is tough, right? Because I think I would say in working with people with you know severe mental illness for many years now, I think the biggest issue with medication adherence um, is side effects. So um, there's not an easy answer. I'm curious what you all strategy are because I know you've all tried and kind of dealt with this at different points, but I would say one of my go-tos is um, to talk to her psychiatrist, for example, about like if weight gain is the biggest issue, for example, um, is there a medication, for example, that we can use to help with this issue? So not necessarily that we wanna add more medications to deal, but there are things like metformin, for example, that are helpful for people who are struggling with this issue specifically, but need to be on an antipsychotic, for example. Um, part of my job also might be on body acceptance, right? So if it is really important for somebody to take the medication, it's important to them in terms of their goals, maybe part of my work is on helping them accept maybe being in a bigger body and dealing with what that feels like and sort of moving them toward a body acceptance kind of place. Um, other strategies might be helping people manage the side effects of meds um, realistically by you know, putting things like regular exercise into their routine, helping them get to that place. Um, you know, because of the clinic setting that I work in, I'm able to go out in the community to some extent to work with people. So sometimes I'll say, let's have a walking therapy session instead. And we walk around, you know, relatively private area and get a little walking that way to help somebody get out and do that type of thing. So it's complex. I don't think there's a really easy answer to this question, if I were being honest, Emily. 
Um, but I think we try to help somebody where they're at. And sometimes that ultimately means not taking medication or taking only some medications or a lower dose of the medications, depending on what they're dealing with. Uh, Selena adds in here, psychoeducation, exploring different med options. Yeah, definitely. Okay. All right. So let's come back together and let's talk next about emotion regulation. So do you know how I mentioned earlier that um, we spend a lot of time on most of these modules when I'm actually teaching this in a DBT skills class or when I'm with a client? This module in particular is, I would say, the most challenging to teach and also the most challenging to understand. So I'm going to do my best to kind of put this out in a short version. Um, I'm going to try to do it as comprehensively as possible. But if you have questions along the way, don't be afraid to ask those, ask those in the chat section. We'll also have time at the end to ask more questions. So let's talk about what emotion regulation means to start. So emotion regulation is the skills that help you or your client or both uh, better manage and reduce the frequency of your challenging emotions. So anger, jealousy, sadness, shame, envy, et cetera. And it's really about emotion management. So specifically in this module, we explore what emotions are um, ways to identify and reduce the intensity of your unwanted emotions. We work on preventing challenging emotions from happening as often. So kind of prevention work as well as management once they're there. And finally, being able to increase the experiences overall of positive emotions or pleasurable emotions, such as happiness and love and joy. Because a lot of our clients, if we're looking at like a scale, they tend to tip more in the side of the challenging emotions more often than the pleasurable or positive ones. So we're sort of intentionally trying to increase that balance to be more pleasurable overall. So overall, these are the primary emotion regulation skills. Um, if you, we're not gonna run through these today, but if you have clients who are struggling with sleep hygiene issues and or nightmares, um, either related to PTSD or not, I really recommend checking out um, the, the skills that are specifically on this section that are in um, Marshall and Hand's DBT skills workbook. Again, I'm gonna list it at the end of the training. Um, because they're really useful. They're really focused on rumination, which is a big problem for people before sleep. I know probably all of us have been through that ourselves at some point too. Okay, so we're going to turn to Hamana's example again to walk us through these next set of three skills we're going to go through. So here's the current situation. So Hamana finds herself feeling absolutely furious at her grandma when she sets a limit with her after Hamana asks to borrow money. So her grandmother tells her she can't lend her any more money because Hamena consistently doesn't pay her back and she's on a fixed income. She can't afford it. So Hamena wants this money so she can buy rolling papers and a bag of chips from the corner store. So in response to her grandmother saying no, she takes off her shoe and throws it across the room and she barely misses her grandma. Then she goes into her room and slams the door on her way in. So the first set of skills that we start with in a situation like this is to check the facts. And Checking the facts is sort of the idea of you acting like a detective or Hamena acting like a detective to figure out if the problem you think you have is as serious as you're feeling it. Um, so one of the questions we might ask is, so first of all, starting with what's the emotion I want to change? So in Hamena's case, this might be like rage, anger, right? Really intense rage or anger. And we might even go through a, um, a behavior chain with her if that's necessary, but it may not be, especially if it's in that moment. But we kind of go through this list of questions here to figure out, are some of her interpretations coming from an emotion-minded place? Because a lot of times people assume there's a threat or a catastrophe happening that may not actually be happening in that moment. 
And so part of what we're working on is getting her to a wise-minded place to figure out what are facts versus what are judgments about the situation. When I say facts, I mean like other people who are in the same situation looking at it would see more or less the same thing. Okay, so here is the super fancy chart we use to go through this. And this is what's called the emotion regulation flow chart. And after Hamina, so Hamina is gonna start at the very top here where it says ask, does this emotion fit the facts? The skill is check the facts. So specifically she's asking herself, does my anger to the extent of throwing my shoe, barely missing my grandmother and then slamming the door, does it match the facts of the situation? That's the question she's asking herself. And so what she's gonna do is turn to, she can either turn to this chart or we might walk her through it ourselves. And what she's going to be looking at is figuring out, first of all, what's her emotion? And in this case, her emotion here is anger. So let's look at where it says anger here on the top, second one down. So anger, so actually before we do that, let me explain something first. So in DBT, we talk about how all emotions are valid. So, but all emotions are not justified. So when I say justified, I mean that not all of our emotions fit the facts of the current situation we're in. So one question we might ask ourselves is, is Hamena's anger valid? Of course it is, because all emotions are valid. So the first step she's going to want to do in all of this is just starting by validating her own emotions. And validation can look as simple as saying to herself, like, I'm feeling hella angry right now. And that's just acknowledging her emotion as real. doesn't mean she agrees with it or that she likes it. It just means that's what's happening for her. And once she's done that, then she needs to figure out if her emotion of anger slash rage is justified or not. And to do that, that's where we turn to the chart here. And so if we look at the definition of anger here, so I'll read these out loud. So there's uh, four different options. So anger is justified if important goal is blocked or desired activity is interrupted or prevented. Two, you or someone you care about is attacked or hurt by others. Three, you or someone you care about is insulted or threatened by others. Or four, the status, the integrity or status of your social group is offended or threatened. So in Jimena's case, the question is, does her emotion of anger fit the facts of the situation? So I think two through four, we can say definitely no, there's no real threat um, or emergency happening, like a safety issue. The question about number one is, is this an important goal? She's specifically asking for money because she wants to get rolling papers and chips at the local corner store. So in this case, we're probably going to say no. It, it's not that she doesn't have a desired activity that's being interrupted or prevented, because it is, right? Like she's asking for money, she, she's not able to get it. But the extent to which her anger comes out in this moment doesn't match the facts of the situation. And you might have a client when, you, when you're talking about something like this, where they might say something to you like, well, in the past, my grandmother's done X, Y, Z to me, right? Whatever terrible list of things. And while that does um, allow their emotion of anger to be valid, because our past obviously informs our current feelings, it doesn't make, uh, excuse me, it doesn't make that emotion of anger in this moment fits the facts of the current situation she's in, where her grandma is saying, I don't have enough money, and you also haven't paid me back, I can't do it right now. So it doesn't really fit the facts. So the question is, what do we do? when an emotion isn't justified, or at least the intensity to which it's being experienced isn't justified. So here's what we do next. We turn back to this fancy flowchart, And so we've said oops, that it probably doesn't. So we say no here. 
And then we move on to then the next question is, hang on, there's a question here. If What if Amanda disagrees and believes that her going to get rolling papers and chips are an important goal? So then the follow-up question we ask, great question, is if it is an important goal that's being blocked, does the intensity to which you're experiencing that anger, like at a level of rage where you're willing to potentially injure your grandma by throwing a shoe across the, the floor, or excuse me, across the room, worth this situation of her saying no? And that's where we're probably going to get a no from her because realistically, she is somebody who cares about her family and probably doesn't want to see her grandmother injured um, just because she's saying no to something like this. So the two questions we're typically acting asking when we talk about checking the facts is, does it meet, meet the facts of what an emotion means? But also, is the intensity to which you're expressing it makes sense given the current situation? So great question. So then the next question we go to here is, is acting on this emotion effective? So in Hamina's case, acting on her emotion, right, because every emotion comes with an action urge, is that she wants to throw something at her grandmother, right? Um, in other cases, it might be somebody wanting to scream or yell or run away or fight, right? These are all emotions associated with anger. And in Jimena's case, the answer is no. I don't really think it is effective for her to potentially injure her grandmother um, when she says no to this. And, and probably she's going to say that as well, that like, you know, she probably feels a lot of guilt afterward, maybe even some sh shame, because what we know about Jimena is she has a good relationship generally with her grandparents and she lives in their house too. So again, um, that's the next place we're going to go to. So now that we've seen a no here, and again, if the answers are different, we go in a different direction here. But if the answer is no, the next step is to use a skill called opposite action. And if you've heard of DBT before, this is probably a skill you've heard of um, to some degree. And what opposite action means is that we are not acting on the emotion or the urge associated with it. So in Jimena's case, that would be not uh, throwing her shoe to her grandma or slamming the door and walking away. So let's kind of go through the steps of what she might do, again, if the situation comes up in the future, to be a little bit more effective. So let's talk about opposite action for anger specifically. So when your emotions don't fit the facts or when acting on your emotions is not effective, using opposite action is going to change your emotional reaction. So in Jimena's case, one of her target behaviors also we know for treatment coming in when we did that diary card yesterday is picking fights. And this is what we would consider probably a target behavior in this situation. So we already know this is something we're working on with her. So the opposite action for anger then is to do, um, so for example, if her urge is to show her, throw her shoe across the room, she has to do the opposite of that, which might be accepting her grandmother's offer or answer and walking away. So when her grandmother says no, it might be that her job is to like take a deep breath and walk away. It could also be telling her grandmother that she's displeased with the answer, but she also understands. So this is really about the idea of doing the exact opposite of what your emotion urge tells you to do. So in her case, it's kind of the fight, like literally to throw a shoe across the room and storm out of the room. So we're looking at what the opposite is. And there's lots of different options of what this could look like based on her. So step one might be in her case that she would take a break in the conversation with her grandmother so she can get a little bit more regulated, bring some of that intensity down. And she can practice being kind rather than acting on her urge to be rude toward her. She can imagine being her grandmother's shoes and seeing the situation from her point of view in order to develop empathy. 
she could change her posture by unclenching her fist, relaxing her muscles, unclenching her jaw. She could also use a distress tolerance skill like the tip skill as needed. If she's feeling really elevated in that moment and she's not gonna be able to think clearly, maybe her job then is to be like, I need to take a break. I'm gonna go use a tip skill or a self-soothe skill or whatever to bring down the intensity and then I'll come back to deal with it. So, and with opposite action, you have to work on doing it all the way in order for it to actually change your emotion away from anger in this case. So if she is having that conversation, but at the same time, she's still grinding her teeth and clenching her fists, the anger is actually not going to go down. It's still going to be very strong for her. So we have to do it again, all of the way by, again, changing her body posture, relaxing her muscles, um, giving, giving her an outcome that's going to look very different than her current situation. So I see a question here. Did you say that opposite action is good to use when the facts don't fit? Yes. So we use opposite action only in the case where your emotional reaction doesn't fit the facts of the situation, or if the intensity of that anger or whatever emotion doesn't meet the facts. Hopefully that answers. Okay. All right. So, um, let me just take a quick pause to make sure everyone's understanding. So love the idea of using opposite action, but doesn't that in and of itself already require a client to have good emotion regulation to walk away, take a time out, et cetera? Great question. Yes. <laughs> well, okay. Yes and no. It may not require it already, but it requires willingness to practice it. So a lot of times like phone coaching, for example, in DBT, or even just a session, what I'm doing is walking a client through here's the average thing you do, right? Like when you have a fight, like it happens more or less in this type of pattern. Something triggers you, you have these thoughts, here's this cascade of emotions, et cetera. So part of what I work on with a client is being able to say, let's create a new game plan where this goes in a different direction in the future and you have a roadmap for what you can do differently. So in a lot of cases, my job is actually working more on mindfulness as a grounding again. So she has awareness of, wow, my emotion of anger, for example, is like totally jacked up as soon as my grandmother said this, I got to go do something different. So part of my work is always like developing a really strong mindfulness practice for clients to have that grounded space of awareness. And then also being able to then say, okay, so what are the go-to skills for you? And oftentimes if somebody's an emotion mind, like we've all probably experienced, it's hard to access those skills. So we write them somewhere down that's accessible. I might put them on the fridge. I might put them in their wallet or purse. Um, I might have a list on their phone for them. Um, somewhere that they can access them quickly when they are not thinking clearly. So they know like, okay, here's what I'm going to do right now. I don't even have to think about it. It's already written down as a roadmap for me. So that's one thing that helps. And obviously, as somebody practices more and more on, over time, they become more skillful and it becomes more naturally. But for, particularly for people who are brand new to these types of skills, yeah, it takes a lot of extra coaching, a little bit of extra support to get them to that place. So great question. So now we've covered the first part of emotion regulation, which is really just about changing your current emotions or better managing the ones that you already have coming up. And so the second part of emotion regulation is about preventing challenging emotions in the first place by reducing your overall vulnerability to them and increasing the likelihood of pleasurable emotions. So ABC please is a skill that helps us with this. So I mentioned when we did the behavior chain yesterday that we all have vulnerabilities to emotions, right? So um, part of this skill is about reducing those vulnerabilities by doing things. So let's start actually at the very bottom of the skill and we'll work our way up. 
So the last set of things here is take care of your mind by taking care of your body. And this is things like explaining kind of the connection between your physical and mental health. So we want clients to do things like treating physical illness when they're sick, seeing a doctor when it's necessary, taking prescribed medication when it makes sense for them. But we're also doing kind of more holistic approach, like helping them balance their diet. And right, we're not really trying to do um, like restricted diets for anyone. Like that's very outside of the scope of this practice and, and not really actually quite harmful for a lot of people. So instead we're working on what does balance look like for you? What are foods that maybe you know make you more emotional? For me personally, right, if I have lots of refined sugar, I'm an emotional mess. So that's for me personally, that maybe that I have more balance in that part of my diet. We also try to avoid mood altering substances, right? So if we have a lot of alcohol, caffeine or drugs, that tends to make us more emotional. Um, we work on helping them with their sleep hygiene and prioritizing sleep, making sure that they are getting enough sleep and really going through kind of the um, protocol then if people are having nightmares that are interfering with sleep to help them reduce that intensity. Exercising regularly, again, the things that work for their body. These are just general suggestions, but again, as you get to know your client, you'll get to understand what's important for them and their routine. And again, what's also culturally aligned, right? So does somebody need to get acupuncture uh, twice a week in order to feel good? Do they need to do, like, do they have herbs that they're taking um, or other holistic remedies? So you want to integrate all of those in as well. Okay, so let's go back up to the top of the skill. So we're reducing the vulnerabilities, and next we're working on the part of accumulating positive emotions. And what I mean by this, again, is that tipping that balance we were talking about before. So we're trying to increase the number of pleasurable or pleasant activities they do by having them do one thing every day. And while and that can be anything, we have a really extensive list in DBT of skills that are useful. Oh, hang on. I got to plug my computer in real quick. Okay. Something I thought I had done before. Okay. We're good. Okay. So, um, that pleasurable activities list exists, but I always want to come up with one that's client specific because again, our clients like to do all kinds of different things. They have different access to means, to transportation, to finances, et cetera. Um, so we try to make lists that are reflective of what they like and what they do. And then we ask them to do one of those every day. And these things could be as fun as like taking a trip to the beach, for example, if they like that kind of thing, but it can also be really small stuff like uh, taking a moment of gratitude for myself um, or, uh, you know, holding my partner's hand. It can be really small stuff too. And those are the ones that I think are also really important to integrate into their day-to-day -day because they're the most accessible and easiest to do typically for people, especially people who are busy in general. So part of then what we have them do after they do this activity is they rank their emotion, maybe on a scale of one to 10, for example, how am I feeling before? And then after I do that pleasant activity, how do I feel afterward to see, is this working? Because again, we're trying to increase the experiences of joy, happiness, love, pleasure, et cetera, in people's lives who often are, you know, clients who come in with these constant crises, right? We call it unrelenting crisis in DBT, where there's just always a lot of fires to put out. And we're trying to give them more experiences of calm and balance and joy to help balance those scales. Okay, so next is build mastery. And building mastery is just the idea of doing things that give you a sense of accomplishment or doing things that you're good at. When we do those types of activities, we tend to feel good, right? So for example, I'll give you some of my examples. Um, I like doing things like 
that have a very clear end product. So like doing the laundry or um, like cleaning the inside of my sink, right? They're not all cleaning related, but those are a few examples I can think of right now where there are things where I have this sense of like, oh, it's done and I can see the product that comes out of it. That's very satisfying for me. So you're trying to find activities like that for your client that they can do as well as things they know they're good at. So if your client is really good at, I don't know, art, um, or they're really good at um, certain type of exercise or crosswords or whatever, you want to have them doing activities like that, that again, give them a sense of control and accomplishment in the world. Okay, and then lastly, we're going to talk about cope ahead of time with emotional situations, which this skill for short is called coping ahead in DBT. So here's the way this one works. If you know you have a stressful situation that's coming up, rather than just spending all of your time ruminating or worrying about it, what you're going to do instead is you're thinking through a plan ahead of time so that you're more prepared to cope with it skillfully. So for example, if I know I have a difficult conversation with my boss coming up and my brain keeps worrying that I'm going to get fired and I'm just spending, you know, like my evening time ruminating about it, I'm having trouble falling asleep, it's just on my mind constantly, I'm getting kind of anxious about it. What I might do then with a coping ahead skill is I'm going to think through ahead of time what I think might be the worst case scenario, right? Kind of the catastrophizing version. And then I think through, okay, if I get fired, right? If that's the worst case scenario here, I'm humiliated at work or whatever. I go through thinking, what do I, what would I need to do to be prepared for that reality? So what could I do beforehand? Like for example, practice my communication skills to make the conversation go well. I could use the tip skill before or self-soothe to help reduce the intensity of my emotional response in that meeting. But then also, what am I going to do after the meeting, right? Who, who are the people I'm going to call on for support? Um, am I going to eat my favorite comfort food? Am I going to work on prepping my resume? And it's really, I think of it similar to like, um, since we're in California, like an earthquake safety plan. This is a thing that, um, well, we know an earthquake's going to happen in California. So it's not the greatest example, but it's sort of like that prepare plan of like, I have to worry less about an earthquake because I know I know what to do, right? I have my earthquake kit set up. I already have my safety plane with my family, right? I have the things set out that I need to do ahead of time. So even though it might happen, I don't have to worry about it quite as much because at least I know what I'm going to do. And the same thing is true for stressful situations. Okay, so let's take a moment before we move to interpersonal effectiveness. Any questions on this section before we move on? There was a question earlier that I skipped over. Um, so from Jessica, when teaching the skills, do you go in the same order from mindfulness to stress tolerance, et cetera, or can you jump around? Um, it depends. So if you're doing DBT informed work, you can do whatever works in the moment for that client. But I would say one thing that's really important is you don't jump over mindfulness. I almost always teach mindfulness first because again, it's the foundation for anything you do next. Right, just again, having the awareness that you know you need to use a distress tolerance skill, for example, or having the awareness that um, you need to call a friend for help, or you need to use an emotion regulation skill, or I need to start practicing ABC please, whatever it is. So we wanna start with that, and then you can work your way in any direction that you want after that point. But I would say naturally, people need to learn distress tolerance next because of that. All right, let's move on to interpersonal effectiveness, and then I'll give you all a few minutes to ask questions at the end. Okay, so interpersonal effectiveness is just a fancy way of saying helping our clients become more skillful and effective communicators who are more likely to reach their objectives. That's all it is, becoming better communicators overall. 
So the way we, so this is the full list of DBT skills um, for the section on interpersonal effectiveness. I just want to give you the quick overview. And what we're going to focus on today is what's called a dear man skill. So let me walk you through this. So when you know you have a tough conversation coming up, like maybe similar to the one I just shared an example of in coping ahead, it's important to understand what your goal is going into that situation. Because many times we get caught up in our own emotion mind or we lose track of our goals because the other person is really persuasive or they're persistent at their communication. So what we ask clients to do is to get more clear on their goals walking into a situation. And first of all, they might ask themselves, um, do you need to ask for what you want in this conversation? Or do you need to say no to a request? And if that's the case, you might use a skill like dear man, which we're going to talk about in detail today. The next question might be, do you need, want to keep or even improve the relationship between you and the other person? If so, the other skill is give. Again, these are all acronyms. Um, and then the last question might be, do you have no other alternative than to really just focus on walking away with your self-respect still intact? If so, then we use the fast skill. And it's not to say that we don't sometimes always have a little bit, like we want a little bit of each of these in a situation, but oftentimes there's more of an overarching goal and a difficult conversation that we just want to get some clarity on ahead of time, what it is that I need from this moment, from this moment. So again, Dear Man is a tool that you can either use to ask for what you want or to say no to a request that somebody's making of you. So I'm going to give you an example from Jimena's life to walk you through what it would sound like. All right. So um, specifically, Jimena's partner goes out and often comes home late, but doesn't communicate with Jimena where she is. So that leaves Jimena feeling frustrated and scared, and she feels like she's abandoned her, and she doesn't understand what's happening. So I'm going to walk you through, really, this is a script, like each of the things that you would have somebody say. And the thing with Dear Man is this is, again, kind of a, a guide map for how to have a conversation, but they can have it in a different way, as long as they integrate at least some of these elements into it. But for a lot of clients who maybe are not skillful saying no or asking for their, what they want or they don't have practice, they really want something very clear and concrete to go through. So let me walk you through it. Step one is describe. You are simply describing the facts of the situation. You're not giving your opinion or your judgment yet. It's just describing. So in Jimena's example, she might say, you told me you would be home by dinner, but you didn't get here until 11 p.m. Just the facts. Next step is an express is where you describe um, your experience of it. So when you come home so late, I start worrying about you and that's really hard on me. Next step is to assert. And that's really what either asking for you want what you want in the situation or saying no. In Jimena's case, in this example, we're gonna use the asking for what you want version first. So she might say something like, I would really like it if you would give me a call when you're going to be late very behaviorally specific. I want you to give me a call if you're going to be late. Very strategic. So then the next piece here is reinforcing. And we talked a little bit yesterday about the importance of reinforcement and behaviorism. So she could say something like, um, I would be so relieved and a lot easier to live with if you would do that. So she's giving her partner a concrete reason why it's a good idea to do the thing she's asking for. She's going to be a better partner overall. She's going to be easier to live with if she does give her a call to let her know she's going to be late. Now, the next skill here of staying mindful is really the idea of becoming a broken record when you're getting off track. 
So for example, her partner might come up with a lot of excuses or a lot of reasons why or get upset about something different. And the idea is you're trying to keep on message. So I would still like a call, like really just keeping on brand with what you've come into the conversation asking for. Next is appearing confident. And that means maintaining whatever stance is culturally appropriate for confidence. Um, in Jimena's case, it might look like uh, making eye contact and sitting up tall while she has this conversation. And this is really just in contrast to maybe a situation where she's really cowered down, her head is down, her arms are crossed across her chest, which maybe displays a different sense of um, how convinced she is that she needs to ask for this because we do want to convey confidence. And again, confidence is always displayed physically um, in terms of tone and affect to be culturally specific. So you go based on what your client describes. Lastly, you might have to negotiate. So Jimena's partner might be like, look, I'm not doing this. Like, I'm not calling you. I don't feel like I need to. I'm not a kid, whatever. So part of what Jimena might do is she might negotiate. She might say, well, how about you text me when you think you might be late instead? Or she can use a strategy we call turn the tables, which is to say, what, if you were in my shoes, what do you think you would do? I can't just stop worrying about me. So what do you think that we should do? And kind of putting the emphasis on maybe her girlfriend to come up with, or her partner to come up with a possible explanation. Okay. So then the next thing that Jimena is to consider in this situation is also then how hard to push for what she wants in this conversation with her partner. And people who deal with emotion regulation problems tend to have the experience of either pushing too hard, so like pushing, 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 um, or pushing too little, um, one extreme or the other. And either can end up damaging the relationship with the other person because either you're pushing too hard or it damages your self-respect and limits because you don't push at all or um, just barely in that situation. So you end up feeling crappy afterward. So if Jimena is to go through this list through of called options for intensity, which is really a roadmap to figure out and get a clearer sense of whether she's considering all the factors involved in this ask, such as their relationship at this moment, the timing of her request, like does it make sense for her partner at this moment in time? How much she's given recently in the relationship? Is there a lot of give and take happening or is it all asking, asking, asking for something you need? What her priorities are? How important is this to her? And then lastly, the other person's capabilities to give her what she wants. So what we would do, um, we sometimes call this the dime game in DBT, um, because literally it, it sounds a little bit childish, but people actually really like it. We assign what, like for a yes, for any of these questions, we assign a dime, which means 10 points. So when somebody goes through this, Amina would kind of answer some of these questions for herself. Like, for example, is this person able to give or do what I want? Is getting what I want more important than my relationship with this person? Will asking help me feel competent and self-respecting, et cetera? I'll let you all go through those questions. So those are the types of questions. And after she answers them, again, she's going to add them all up based on how many yeses she has to the question. So for example, if she answers, is this person able to give or do what I want? That's 10 points. And again, these are all specific to the relationship and cultural dynamics she has with that person. And based on what she comes up with, let's say Hamena had seven yeses, hypothetically. What we would do is then she goes down to this place in the scale that says 70 points, ask confidently, resist no. So she's actually going to push relatively hard in the scheme of things. 
you might have clients in particular, again, who just don't know sometimes when to like push, push, push. And when are there times where they need to kind of let it go and maybe ask at a different time that's more strategic. And so this is one tool to help them get there. So we have about, we're gonna spend about five minutes on this next behavior chain. And I'm gonna ask for your participation in this. We're gonna be talking about Hamena again. So Hamena shares that she became dysregulated at work recently after receiving feedback from her boss at work regarding her performance. On her way home from work, she spent the entire car ride saying things to herself like, I'm such a loser, and remembered she'd missed her Depakote that morning. When she got home and her mom asked her what was wrong and offered to help, she threatened to kill herself um, if her mom didn't get away from her. Her mom became extremely upset because Hamina has attempted suicide in the past. The local mental health crisis line was closed for the night, so her mother called the police to respond, which further upset Jimena, who has justified fear around police brutality towards people of color with mental health issues. This is a charged example here. Um, so let's look at a behavior chain for Jimena. Again, what we're trying to look at is the problem behavior here in this situation, which is about threatening suicide, that that is really not the most effective way to get what you want from somebody. It actually tends to damage the relationship, and in Jimena's case, you know, she, her parents, or her mom in particular, has some trauma around her suicide attempts in the past. So that's triggering this whole other kind of piece to come up around police involvement. So let's start at the beginning. So I want you all, I'm going to um, go through this with you. Let's talk about vulnerabilities. So what vulnerabilities did you all hear in Jimena's example? Go ahead and write them in the chat and I'll fill them in. Missed meds. Great. Perfect example. So Jimena in this case has already missed her medication. And we know that that's something that kind of puts her on an off feeling. We also know she's a little bit anxious already um, about making a mistake at work. Criticize at work. Thank you, Helen. Great. Okay, so now let's look at the prompting event. What's the thing that happened that actually set off her, this kind of chain of events that ended up happening? So in this case, receiving negative feedback from her boss. Nice. Perfect. Okay, great. You all are on top of it. Okay, so then what were the, some of the thoughts that ran through Jimena's mind after this feedback from her boss. She messed up, she was a loser. Yes, great, great examples. So those are things that she said to herself. And then what were the emotions um, that either she may have experienced that we have written down or that you might imagine she could experience in a situation like this? Anger, self-doubt, sadness, uh-huh, great. Feeling worthless, all great examples. There might even be some shame, I'm guessing, um, just based on the fact that, you know, she's pretty upset about hearing this feedback. And then what about physical sensations? What could she be feeling in her mind, or excuse me, feeling in her body when she's noticing these emotions of anger, sadness, shame, self-doubt, et cetera? Increased heart rate, mm -hmm. high levels of anxiety. And usually anxiety I think of as manifest as like, yeah, heart beating fast, muscle tension, sweating, increased breathing, tension, good all examples all around. Okay, so she might notice these types of things happening. And then what happens next? So she has some th more thoughts that pop up. And in this case, we had the thought again, I'm such a loser. And maybe she continues to ruminate on that thought. That's a lot of times what might be happening when she's driving. She drives home to her house. That's the behavior that happens here. And then her mom asks her what's wrong and offers to help. So then what we see happen in the next section here is then she threatens suicide. So that's the next step in the chain. So then let's look at the consequences. What happens after, in terms of her thoughts, 
or emotional experience after the suicide side threat happens. Any examples here? Thoughts, emotions, behaviors, yes, but what specific ones? She feels guilt. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely possible. My guess is she may also have this immediate reaction of like maybe some relief from having kind of screamed at her mom. Um, but we also see the consequence, unfortunately, of this, of her mom then calling the police, which might even then escalate her even further. So I'd be better off here if I, better off if I, with, let me say that again, sorry. I'd be better off with, I wasn't here anymore. Oh, if I wasn't here anymore. See, I am a loser. Fear, guilt, fear, uh, feeling scared. Great. I'm a burden. Fear of police, right? Maybe some past trauma around that, or at least justified fear given the experience of people of color with the police. So there's a lot that comes and sort of escalates very quickly after the suicide threat. Um, so there's a lot that's coming up for Hamena here. So let's now take a second to look at, oops, um, what she can do, excuse me, um, differently. I'm going to try using the pen here and see if I can use this. Okay. So what I want you all to do next is based on the skills that you've learned today and yesterday, where you might see her intervening. So let's start right here, right towards the end of this chain. Actually, let me use a different color pen. Hang on. So you can see it a little bit better. Okay, how about right here? What do you imagine Hamena doing in this moment? What could she do to deescalate herself? Tip, yes, absolutely. Great example. What else? She could distract herself. Yeah, she may need a break in this moment from what's happening for her, definitely. I'm wondering if she could maybe use opposite action in this moment. Um, to help her de-escalate that emotion by, rather than yelling at mom, she could, for example, um, go to the other room and kind of just like de-escalate herself slightly. Uh, take a break and scream at a piddle, sure. Take a time out, self-soothe, great examples. Yeah, things just to bring down that intensity of what's happening. What about further up chain? Let's look a little further up here. What about right after she's received that critical feedback from her boss? What else could she be doing at this point? Self-soothing or mindfulness, uh-huh. She could use tip again here, like pace muscle relaxation. She could call for coaching. Yeah, she could validate herself. Yeah, that's a really important one here. Thanks for naming that. In any of these cases, often the first thing we have clients do is just name what they're experiencing, which is self-validation. Like, man, I'm feeling so pissed off right now. I'm feeling so much embarrassment and shame right now. As a way both to bring down the intensity of the emotion, but have that mindful kind of moment of checking in to see what is happening with me right now. Okay, great examples, everyone. Okay, what about up here? Is there anything that we might look at in terms of the vulnerabilities, so the more of the prevention area? So we know she's already anxious going in. Um, she's missed her medication. Are there any things in that area that she could work on to be more skillful? Cope ahead of time. Yeah, we already know the situation might be coming up where um, she might be really stressed out. She may also, just to add to that, she might try out dear man, right? Like she may decide to use some of her interpersonal effectiveness skills to manage that conversation ahead of time. Set med reminders, great. Try, and consistent, try to increase the consistency of medication adherence, great. Perfect examples, everyone. Okay. All right, so there's a lot of other areas we could intervene in. You all have come up with great examples already, including down chains, so somewhere down here in the consequence area as well, because we also see this kind of new trajectory of increased emotions come up. So um, that'll be something you can always think about for yourself later. So I want to just take a moment now um, to give you some ideas since we've wrapped up today 
about further training options for their reading. So um, if you are thinking about doing DBT work on your own, DBT informed practice, or starting a DBT skills group, or some, some version of that, um, behavioral tech, tech and practice ground are sort of the gold stars of places that you can go to learn about DBT, do more trainings. Obviously, all of the workbooks that are available, and there are quite a lot that you can look at um, that might be useful to you in the future. So I'm going to go ahead and, and actually, I want to give you all my references, just so you can see them briefly. You'll see them in the PowerPoint as well. I'm going to stop staring my screen for a moment. So what questions do you all have in addition to what we've talked about today in terms of DBT work or based on what's come up for you today? Okay, so there's a question here. It's difficult to know when to use what skill. Great. Okay, so let me start by saying um, the first step in any situation, if we're talking about like, how do we lay these out for clients is the mindfulness piece, right? Like just being aware of what's happening for you doing the first initial check-in. From there, a client decides what's going to be most useful. So a lot of times, if somebody, again, is in that kind of intense emotional range, again, that's 7 out of 10 kind of scale, like if we're thinking out of 10 total intensity, then oftentimes we need clients to use distress tolerance, really just to bring down the intensity so they can get to a more wise-minded place to know what they need to do. So for example, it's really difficult to check the facts and use opposite action when you're in emotion mind. Right? It's just very difficult to access that type of like logical mind in that moment. So a lot of times clients, if they're in kind of that crisis mode in their brain, have to use distress tolerance first. So again, that's distraction, short-term distraction. That could be self-soothing. That could be weighing the pros and cons. That's a great way to take your mind back to a more wise-minded place is to weigh short-term, long-term pros and cons. Um, that could be a time to use tip. Um, any of those skills that we talked about in that area is a way to, again, reduce the intensity of what's happening in that moment so that we can figure out what we need to do next. And then that might mean then you tack on other skills in that moment, depending on the situation. So if it's about interpersonal effectiveness, I have to be more effective as a communicator right now. It might be that. It might be a different situation where it's about um, I have to work on problem solving a situation where I this, this emotion I'm feeling is justified. I just don't like feeling it. And so how do I work on dealing with the emotional experience I'm having right here now and regulating it more effectively, again, without doing something that makes the situation worse. So there's a question here, do you recommend mindfulness apps for clients to download? Yeah, I definitely do. Um, I always recommend free options first um, because of the population I tend to work with. So um, there's an app for people of color called the Liberate app um, that's available in the App Store on your phone. Um, there's also one, um, there's some free ones on Headspace. And then there's another one that I really like called Insight Meditation Timer. And that has um, some wonderful different people who are, um, like, for example, like Tara Brock is on there, um, Kristen Neff, who does self-compassion work. There's a lot of different options that are available there. And I like the way that they design theirs to be about, what's my issue right now? Am I having trouble sleeping? Do I need help with anxiety? That kind of thing. Okay, how can we work effectively with clients that would best benefit from DBT if they've excuse me, encountered clinicians who have treated the client poorly and caused trauma? So people who already come to the table with a lot of baggage around bad therapy previously. Um, I mean, the first step to me is like taking a history around that and validating it. 
Um, because you're going to have to prove yourself extra as a therapist working with somebody who's had those experiences. And so to me, transparency is the biggest thing. So being able to acknowledge that um, all therapists, unfortunately, are not created equal. And it's not that people aren't trying their best to do what they can, but sometimes things happen um, and they are not the best fit for that client. So I, I always tell people like, let's talk about what's worked for you and not worked for you in the past. And I also want to explain where I come from and how I approach therapy that might look different than that to see if we're going to be a good match. Because there are so many elements that go into a good match, um, not just treatment modality, right? It's also based on my identities. Do they match the client's identities around culture, for example? So we want to, and also just interpersonally, like, do we fit in terms of like, do we like each other kind of to some extent? So those are things that I would definitely recommend talking to clients from the beginning rather than waiting for them to become issues later on down the road. Uh, okay. Somebody's asking, can I state again or write down the apps? Yeah, I can put them in the chat section. Uh, oh, somebody already has liberate meditation, insight meditation and headspace. Yes. Those are the three. Thank you for putting those there. Okay. And then somebody's adding also mindfulness coach is also a great resource as well as the breathe app. Great. Perfect. Okay, so we're at 11 o'clock. So I'm aware of our time that we need to uh, slow things down now. So I just want to thank you all for all of your hard work the past two days. I want to take uh, also take a second to thank um, Sasha and Jean who have been an integral part of this training going smoothly and happening today. What I would recommend right now moving forward is practice what you've learned. Um, if you're curious about more options, they're available in the PowerPoint for more training. I know we really just got to do kind of a, a glimmer of DVT. There's a lot more under the surface that I would love for you all to explore as well. Um, and I think the last piece is if you have more questions that come up, uh, you can contact me directly. Um, on my website, it's maggiemullen.org, and you can ask follow-up questions through my site just by contacting me. So feel free to do that. Um, there's a last question here. Is the flowchart available in the presentation link? Yeah, it'll be in here. It's also available because it comes directly from Marshall Linehan's materials. It's available in her workbook as well if you want to look into that. All right. Thank you, everyone. Take good care of yourselves. Really appreciate it. And um, enjoy your, your new DBT skills. I hope they work for you and your clients.